Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome. So as JT said... We are in the last section of the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts, seeing how is God building his church throughout the entire summer. This is our last meeting for the summer, and this concludes our series. And I'm to preach out of Acts chapter 28, so you can turn there. It's in verses 23 through 31 that we'll be camping out tonight. But it would be terrible of me to to just jump over the rest of this. Chapters 21 through 28 are some of the most exciting, exhilarating, action-packed parts of Scripture particularly in the New Testament. So I'm going to give you a quick overview or summary of chapters 21 through 22 and kind of draw a point out of that while you all turn to chapter 28. So Paul, we left Paul in Ephesus when Gabe preached last week. Paul was in Ephesus desiring to go to Jerusalem. As he's going to Jerusalem, the saints, the believers, are attempt, they're trying to detain him, to slow him down because they don't want Paul to go to Jerusalem. They know what's waiting for Paul in Jerusalem. They know he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. And so they're, they're slowing down with tears and prayers, and they're, they're praying to God for him, which is all good things. But Paul's fed up with it. He knows what he's going to do, and so he, he wants to go do it. And finally, he stands up, and he's like, enough. And he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem, all for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul enters Jerusalem, and this is the beginning of the end for Paul. He's arrested while he's in the temple. And he's allowed for a moment to speak to a crowd. And he gives his testimony to them. He gives his testimony to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, as a quick application, I hope that anyone who gives their testimony here, if you're a believer, you do it to the glory of Jesus. Because Ephesians says that faith is a gift of God and not of man, so that nobody can boast. So when you give your testimony, do it to the glory of Jesus. Back to our story, though. He gives his testimony, and he makes a sort of defense before the Jews. He's like, I'm a Jew, too. I understand where you guys are coming from, but look, I found a better way. This is Jesus. He's the Christ. And then he tells them that he preached the gospel, the good news, that Jesus is the Christ to the Gentiles. And at this, the Jews just flip out. They freak out. They start storming the stage, throwing stuff at him. They try to mob him. And so he's taken back into custody by the officials who are holding him. And he's stretched out to be flogged. His arms are stretched out so that he can be beaten on the back with a leather whip. But before he's beaten, he looks at the centurion and he's like, I'm a Roman citizen. Roman citizens had rights that they weren't allowed to be unfairly punished or executed without a trial. So the centurion's like, I'm not going to whip this guy if he's a Roman citizen without a trial. He's sent to get a trial. But first he's sent to Ananias, the priest, the high priest. The name will sound familiar to you. When he comes to Ananias, the high priest, Ananias has this, probably this big burly guy come up to Paul and just decks him in the mouth. And so Paul... Is probably bleeding out of his mouth and out of his face now and spitting blood. He's like, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Everyone in Jerusalem, everyone that's around Paul right now is against him and very much against him. And so next he comes to the council of the Jews. He's taken to these council of the Jews where there's a party of Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees and Pharisees agreed on almost everything except for one minor doctrinal difference. And that was on the resurrection of life. And so immediately when Paul comes in there, he outwits everyone in the room. He's like, I'm on trial today, gentlemen, over the question of the resurrection of life. 
So the Sadducees and Pharisees just start going at it. Have you ever seen two chickens fight? The Sadducees and Pharisees got their feathers ruffled. It would be like if I said to you all right now, I wonder how many of you like pineapple on your pizza. And all of you, all of you with taste buds are like, yeah, put your hands up. And everyone else doesn't, pity them. And then a lot of you haven't even tried pizza and don't know what I'm talking about because you're gluten-free, but that's okay. So the, the whole place, the whole council is divided and they just completely forget about Paul because they're arguing with one another. It's like a bar fight in a Jewish council. Everyone just forgets about Paul and goes crazy. So since they can't take care of him, Paul sent to three government officers. He sent to two governors and one king. And when he comes to them for two entire years, he spends those two years proclaiming the gospel to those men. Those men had the right to kill him. They had the right to send him to any punishment that, he, that they wanted to. And Paul's his own lawyer. Instead of making a defense for himself, for his own safety, he proclaims the gospel to them every single time he comes before them. And then Festus, on one of the last occasions, one of the governors named Festus, he stands up and he's like, Paul, you're out of your mind, dude. You're insane. He says, your learning has driven you out of your mind. And Paul very respectfully says, no, sir. I'm not insane. I'm speaking the truth. And even the king Agrippa believes. He was the king who was there. And he turns to King Agrippa and he says, oh, king, no matter how long it takes, I will try to convert you to Christianity because it is a better way. And I wish that you were just as I am. I long to see you know Jesus, he says, to be just as I am except for these chains because Paul is bound at this point. So they send him away. And so Paul is sent to Rome. And on the way, his ship is tossed about on the sea. It's wrecked on Malta. Paul gets bit by a viper. Then he finally goes to Rome. He's chained to a Roman centurion in a house prison. And you think you've had a bad day. So there's a question here. We've seen all that. And I think in all of our hearts and all of our minds, we're saying with Festus, Paul, you're out of your mind. What are you doing? You're facing persecution. You're facing all of these trials, these troubles, for what? How can someone live like this? That's our question. What's different about Paul? Paul was different because he lives his entire life from, we see all the way back when, when Paul comes on the scene in Acts and he's converted by Jesus. Up until now, up until his death, Paul lives with his eyes fixed on the kingdom of God. He longs to see heaven and to see glory. He's got this eternal tunnel vision. He can't see anything else except heaven and the Lamb of God on the throne. And so he's concerned while he lives in this life, if that's his eternal concern, he's concerned while he lives, while I'm still here, I'm concerned with the proclamation of the kingdom of God, with the gospel going forth and out into all nations. That's his attitude. That's why he doesn't care about anything else. We might call this living like an exile. You know what exiles are? They're people who are exiled out of their country. They're not to return. And actually, one of my favorite uh, pictures of this or illustrations, illustrations of this is the story of Robin Hood. I've loved Robin Hood since I was like six years old. I used to watch the Disney Robin Hood with the fox and uh, the bear and all that stuff. And then I read the book when I got older, and I've realized more and more this is, this is a story that is like, like scripture in some ways. Robin Hood lives in the woods under the reign of an evil king, right? There's an evil king ruling at his time, and he lives in the woods as an exile, as an outlaw. And he does all that he can while he's there to love the poor and oppressed. Robin Hood gives them money. He, get, he loves on the poor and oppressed. And he's always reminding his men 
and the people he helps that King Richard is coming back. There's a rumor that King Richard is dead. People are talking like King Richard's dead. He's gone, man. Give up on it. But Robin Hood hopes against hope that the king's going to return and he's going to make everything right. And the king does return and there's the singing and rejoicing in the festival. The Disney does a good job of showing that. And Robin Hood was a faithful servant and his king returns. And there's victory for that. And so I want the same outlook that Robin Hood has, in a sense, for me and for all of you. And I want the same outlook that Paul had. The same, the same tunnel vision, the eternal t- tunnel vision that Paul lived with, I want for all of us. And so we've gone Acts 21 through 28. We're in 28 now. Look at verse 23 with me, and we'll see how Paul lives like this now. This is the final days of Paul and the final section of Acts. Acts 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging. Paul is living in Rome, and the Jews have come to him to hear what, what's this guy got to say. It's like a Jewish ultimate boys trip. And so they appointed a day for him. They come to him at his lodging in great numbers. All these people packed into a tiny house, probably a flat in downtown Rome. And from morning until evening, he expounds to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. From morning till evening, the entire day. And some of them are convinced by what he says, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. They're listening the whole day. They're getting tired. They, they, they're like, this guy's crazy. Paul, you're out of your mind. Again, they get up, they leave. And Paul's like, hold, hold one second. I have one more thing to say to you. This was not a joy to say to Paul, but he says this. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Paul says to the Jews, this is basically the most condemning thing he could have said. God is calling out to you, and you've not listened. The Jews... They're wearing these spiritual uh, noise-canceling headphones. God is calling to them, and they hear nothing. God gave them the law of Moses and the prophets, and they all talk about Christ coming, the Messiah coming. They witnessed Jesus live. These men would have witnessed Jesus live, some of them, and yet they didn't understand. Why? Because their hearts were hardened, and their eyes could not see. And so Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you, verse 28, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Verse 29, you will notice is missing. Come talk to me about that later. 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, Jew and Gentile, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So I want to highlight three things for you from this text about the kingdom of God. Paul's obsessed with getting to the kingdom. You should be obsessed with getting to the kingdom. And I'll show you why. There's three things in here. And for you note takers, you're welcome. It's three Ps. Peace, it is a kingdom of peace. God's kingdom is a kingdom of power. And God's kingdom is a kingdom of presence. It is present now. And so we see first peace. Verses 23 through 28. What do we see here in the text about the nature of the kingdom? It is to be a united kingdom. Not that we'll be sipping tea eternally and have English accents. But it is a, it is a kingdom that God has made of both Jew and Gentile. A Gentile is someone who was not a Jew, anyone who's not a Jew, most of us, and Jews as well. God's going to make one new kingdom out of them. 
Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that all of Israel will be saved. This is not ethnic Israel. There were people in ethnic Israel, Jews, who rejected Jesus Christ, and so they will be in hell. And so will anyone else who rejects Christ. But to those who believe, they are going to be made, Paul says, into one new kingdom, into a new Israel, a holy nation. Both Jew and Gentile united in the kingdom of God by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians says that he takes two men and makes them into one. He takes all the nations of the world and makes them into one nation to, the, to his glory. And so today, when you hear the gospel proclaimed, do not become like the Jews wearing their spiritual noise-canceling headphones. Don't harden your heart. Don't cloud your eyes over. Because Jesus says that those people who do those things, they love the glory that comes from men. They love temporal things, which things of this earth. They're more consumed with the things of this earth than the things of God. Because those who hear him are concerned about glory from God. Romans 9 says that the, the Jews received the Mosaic Law, they received the prophets, yet they failed to attain righteousness before God because they did not accept it by faith. But they were straining and striving their whole lives. Think of the Pharisees to do what was right by the law. You'll fail every time. The Gentiles, on the other hand, who didn't receive the Mosaic Law, they didn't receive words from the prophets, they, they didn't even try to live up to the law. But they received rightness before God. How? Because of Jesus Christ. Because they believed in him. The works of man are damning, but the works of Christ are saving. And this word that Paul speaks, don't let your eyes be clouded or closed and your hearts be hardened and your, your hearing become, don't become deaf. It's not only a warning to those who have received the gospel. Believe you, you're not in the clear. You are, by Jesus' blood, justified before God, but there's an application for you here too. There are some of you who have received the gospel. You are truly a believer. And I don't want to make you feel like you're not. But I just want to call you back to the, the joy that you once felt in the gospel. Some of you have grown up in church. You've received the gospel. And yet your eyes are clouded. And your ears are hard of hearing. You don't understand the gospel as gloriously as you once did. I was thinking of an illustration for this. The sun, which is definitely not out right now, gives light and life. It's a good thing. And I have a truck, Eugene, the love of my life. And it, it's bright red. Most of you know what I'm talking about. When the sun from long exposure beats down on my truck, it causes sun fading. It causes spots. It, it, the paint is, becomes worn off. It fades. And just so are many of your hearts. The long exposure to the gospel, you've forgotten the joy that you once took in it. You've forgotten the, the joy of the truth that you once held so dearly. You've experienced sun fading on your hearts. The gospel has become routine and ordinary for you. And I would call you back to your first love. The solution for this gospel fading, like if we could take an x-ray of many of our hearts right now. My heart, most of the time, if we could take an x-ray of it, you would see gospel fading marks on it. So the solution to this Think of the first time that you, you care for something or you love something. A new pair of shoes, the first time you wear them, you're strutting around. A sport you played since you were a kid. A house you grew up in. Something to that effect. Something that's, that's the first thing that you loved. You love it more than anything else and no other love can, can beat that love. So, remind yourself of the doctrine that you were saved by. That Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Simple doctrine. A sweet doctrine. The only thing by which you're saved is your hope in Jesus Christ. So to those of you who know that your heart has been faded by long exposure to the gospel, praise God that you've had long exposure to the gospel. But you should go and strengthen that and not become weak under that. You, Jesus loves you. Simple kid song. Jesus loves you. Remind yourself of that. Jesus loved you first and paid the penalty of your sins on the cross. That is proof. His death on the cross is proof that he loves you. And we love him because he first loved us. So God extends his love to every one of you. All of you who are saved, God has extended his love to you. Remember that. And the love will be reciprocated. You're a rotten sinner apart from his grace. I'm a rotten sinner apart from his grace. But he loved you while you were still a sinner. And he brought you to himself. What a good God. So transition out of power, or out of peace, I'm sorry, into the second P, which is power. Paul lived consumed with his first love for God. The Gentiles are added to the kingdom to make a united kingdom. Now power. This is in verses 30 through 31. Let's read it. Paul, remember he's in Rome, lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed everyone who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Not a surprise at this point. This is what Paul has dedicated his life to. Verses 30 through 31 is nothing new for us. But the significance is in verse 31 that Paul, in Rome, is teaching about the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. Paul didn't experience hindrance in the city of Rome. A little history lesson. The city of Rome was like the center of the pagan world. The whole Roman Empire, which was like pretty much everyone's entire world at that point. Rome is the center of it. It's like a, like a hub on a wheel, a bike wheel or a wagon wheel. It's like a hub and all the spokes come out from it. You take away the hub and the, the whole thing falls apart. Rome is the hub of the entire pagan civilized world. It was also the city of man. It was a very sinful, very dark city. It was the seat of the governmental power at the time. And what does God do? He sends his arrow into the heart of the enemy. He sends the gospel to the epicenter of pretty much the entire world at that point and into the darkest place. The light of Christ is shown on the darkest city of the world now. And then we see this is the end of the book. We've made it all the way through. There we go. But we see in Acts 1.8, Jesus promises. He promises his, his disciples saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, check. They did that in Acts 2. Judea, check. The gospel's bleeding out from Jerusalem. Samaria, done. And the end of the earth. What better place for Luke to end this story than on a triumphant gospel note that Paul is proclaiming the gospel in the darkest city of the earth, on the earth, and it's the center of the known world. The gospel has indeed gone to the end of the earth at this time. There's also an exhortation here that we need to carry on this gospel at the end of the earth. Acts 1.8 isn't just given to the disciples. Acts 1.8 is given to every one of you who's a believer. That the power of the Holy Spirit has come on you that you might witness to those who don't believe. That you might teach them about the kingdom of God. Proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. What? With all boldness and without hindrance. Also, Luke doesn't... It's interesting because Luke doesn't tell us about the end of Paul's life. 
But spoiler alert, and this is very real and sobering, Paul is martyred under Nero. Nero commands Paul to be taken outside the Roman city, out of Rome, and he's executed by the sword, he's beheaded. And Paul counted it all gain. He says this in his letters. For me to live as Christ, while I'm here, I'm going to proclaim the gospel. You better believe it. But for me to die is to come into the presence of my Savior eternally. Paul's in heaven now rejoicing, and he's never going to move from there. He'll be at the throne of God for all of eternity, worshiping. And it's exactly what he wanted. Paul counted it all gain, including his death. So the kingdom of God is for Israel, the new Israel, the elect of God, both Jew and Greek united. That was our first point, peace. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. Secondly, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of power because the kingdom of God is victorious over its enemy. We compare to the beginning of the sermon series, the city of man and the city of God or the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God sends its arrow into the heart of the enemy. That would be the city of man. And it has done so here. And our third P, our final point, presence. The kingdom of God is present. I'm telling you, believer, that the kingdom of God is come. We pray all the time in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is come. And I don't have an address, a, a verse address for this point. And so if you're taking notes, my reference is just scripture, all of scripture. If believer, anyone ever asks you, what is, the, what is the Bible about? What's the message of the Bible? It's the anticipation and the realization or the waiting for, and oh, finally it's here, of the kingdom of God and of the coming of the king, the return of the king. Shout out to Tolkien. I'll show you a quick example of this. Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve have just sinned, and God is talking to them, and immediately he highlights these two kingdoms. He says, there's a kingdom of the serpent. This is Satan's kingdom, the city of man, and there is the kingdom of God. The, the king is the righteous offspring, the good offspring of Eve. He promises that the woman will have a descendant who will crush the head of the serpent. The head of the serpent will be obliterated someday. Has God been faithful before? Yes, he will do it again. Genesis 17, 6 through 8. God promises to Abraham a land for this kingdom and that God himself will be the king of the kingdom. We've just said that, God, that the offspring will be the king, but we also say that God has been the king, realized in Jesus. Genesis 26, 2 through 5. God promises to Isaac, although you're in exile, I will bring you into this promised land that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Realization in Jesus. Second Samuel 7, 8 through 17. This one is so sweet. God promises to David, one, a land for the people. Two, a sweet rest for the people. And thirdly, the righteous king for the people. And we say, okay, well then when is God going to bring all this to completion, to fruition? When's it going to come about? When's he going to unite the Jew and the Greek, finally, making a united kingdom? When's he going to crush the head of the serpent, destroy the city of man? When do, the, when do the people, believers, that's us, when, do, when are we going to receive a land? When are we going to receive a rest? And when are we going to behold our righteous king? When will the kingdom come? That's our question. John 12, 12 through 15 is a sweet section. Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly. The king entering the country. And 
It says in there, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. And indeed, he has come. The kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. Does that create a sense of urgency? This is a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of power, but it's also a present kingdom. It's here now. If you're not in the kingdom, you better get in before the flood starts. We, all of us, live bodily in the kingdom of man, in the city of man. We all live here. Believer, we also have a citizenship in heaven, in the kingdom of God now. But our bodily living on this earth is quickly coming to an end. You and I, all of us believers, live on this earth for one reason. The same reason as Paul, from Acts 1 to Acts 28. What's his mission? The proclamation of the gospel. We live here for the same reason, to proclaim Christ. And as we do, we're waiting and longing for the glory of the king to be revealed finally at the second coming. But we know that he's already victorious. The things of this world are going to attempt to cloud your vision. I promise you that. The things of earth that will be destroyed someday will try to block your view of Jesus, of Christ, the one who's already won, our king. But your crown, this sparkling golden crown is in heaven waiting for you. Don't give up your crown for the things of this earth. It's like giving up a jewel for mud. We are very much exiles and pilgrims and sojourners right now. Paul was. We saw the picture of Robin Hood. We are exiles, pilgrims, and sojourners, believer. We are without a home or a country, but our home and country is eternal. And we will be there very soon. We're almost home. As surely as you have received Christ, he will receive you someday. Praise be to God. The, the martyrs have always been very interesting to me because they, they are, as Paul was, it seems that they're out of their mind. Why would you give up life? Why would you give up everything good to be either crucified or burned? The blood of the martyrs and the suffering of Christians now adorn the kingdom of God. We wander in this world, again, with one purpose, the proclamation of the gospel to bring Christ to all the nations, to the ends of the earth, believer. You've been given the Holy Spirit to do this. The purpose of Paul, who didn't care for his own life, he wanted to be with Jesus, which was far better for him. And he was, he was glorying the day that he was killed. He was praising God as, as he was beheaded. But think about all the martyrs that we know of. Polycarp, Irenaeus, John Huss, Wycliffe, Knox, the proclamation of the gospel. That was their one, that's the only thing they cared about. Through life or death, they would glorify Christ. These, the men I just told you about, the martyrs in history, Paul, burned, stoned, beheaded, torn apart by lions, and they counted it all gain. Why? Why? You're out of your mind. No, you're out of your mind not to live for a purpose that isn't eternal. We live for an eternal purpose, and to do otherwise is insanity. The world does it. Don't do it with them. Every drop of blood that the martyrs spilt was not their own. That's how they could do it because they didn't belong to themselves anymore. They have been bought by the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. When he spilled his blood, they've been bought by that blood, redeemed by that blood. And now 
His blood ran through their veins. Believers, this is how we live in exile. We count everything else as loss except Christ and to proclaim the kingdom of God while we are here. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Does the blood of the lamb run in your veins?